A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Hi, I'm Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we are continuing our celebration of our one-year anniversary with the movie Silence of the Lambs. We started this podcast talking about Copycat, which is one of our shared favorite horror movies. And, you know, we love the subgenre of the, the crime horror film. And we thought we'd bring it home for the one-year anniversary and talk about the one that sort of started it all in the 90s. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Robert, but this horror film identifies as a thriller? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think in this particular choice... You need to respect its nouns. (laughs) Whatever you want to call it, it's still a horror thriller or something, right? So, uh, Silence of the Lambs is a big deal when it comes to, like, horror crime, especially in the 90s. It started a whole slew of movies that came after it, and um, we thought we'd spend some time and talk about it. And all jokes aside, we'll be getting into a lot of the stuff that surrounds this film, including some of the issues surrounding LGBT, especially the tea part of the LGBT issues. Mm-hmm. Well, because back in the 90s, the early 90s, I think that that segment of the LGBT umbrella was far underrepresented. There's a lot to, to dive into there. And we'll trust us. We'll get we'll get there. Yeah. Silence of the Lambs is a 1991 American psychological horror thriller film <laughs> directed by Jonathan Demme, adapted from Thomas Harris's 1988 novel of the same name. The film stars Jodie Foster, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, Ted Levine, and Darla Bichon Fries, or Bitch and Frizzy, as we like to call them here, <laughs> as Precious. <laughs> Precious. <laughs> The novel was Harris's first to feature Clarice Starling and the second to feature Hannibal Lecter, and was the second adaption of Harris's novel to feature Lecter, preceded by the Michael Mann-directed Manhunter back in 1986, based on his novel Red Dragon, also a film later made with Brit Fines. The film's score was composed by Howard Shore. I love that score so, so much. Um, It's regularly cited by critics, film directors, and audiences alike as one of the greatest and most influential films of all time. A sequel titled Hannibal was released in 2001 in which Hopkins reprised his role. It was followed by two prequels, Red Dragon from 2002 and Hannibal Rising from 2007. I never watched that one. I haven't seen it either, actually, so... I don't think uh, Anthony Hopkins was in that. He's not. He's sort of a younger child in that movie. Yeah, okay. So maybe that's one to revisit later, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of these sequels and remakes later on. But for now, without further ado, this is The Silence of the Lambs. You spook easily, Starling. Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell, I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, She'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. 
so close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? FBI detective with childhood trauma tries to imprison a misunderstood trans dog lover by routinely harassing a famous chef. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's true if you think about it. I mean, that's the most concise plot line of this movie I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Is that the real one? No. No. Uh, <laughs> let me hear it. FBI trainee Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, is pulled from her training at the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia, by Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn, of the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit. He assigns her to interview Hannibal Lecter, a former psychiatrist and incarcerated cannibalistic serial killer, played by Anthony Hopkins, whose insight might prove useful in the pursuit of a psychopathic killer nicknamed Buffalo Bill who kills young women and then removes the skin from their bodies, played by Ted Levine. Clarice travels to the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where she's led by the head of the hospital and full-time creep, (laughs) Dr. Chilton, to Hannibal's solitary quarters. Although initially pleasant and courteous, Hannibal grows impatient with Clarice's attempts at dissecting him and rebuffs her. As she's leaving, one of the prisoner flicks man-chowder at her. (laughs) What gave her the red-eye surprise? (laughs) Hannibal, who considers this act unspeakably ugly, calls Clarice back to his cell and tells her to seek out an old patient of his. This leads her to a storage shed, where she discovers a man's severed head with a sphinx moth lodged in his throat. She returns to Hannibal, who tells her that this man is linked to Buffalo Bill. He offers to profile Buffalo Bill on the condition that he may be transferred away from Dr. Chilton, who he detests. Meanwhile, Buffalo Bill abducts a senator's daughter, Catherine Martin. Crawford authorizes Clarice to offer Hannibal a fake deal, promising a prison transfer if he provides information that helps him find Buffalo Bill and rescue Catherine. Instead, Hannibal demands a quid pro quo from Clarice, offering clues about Buffalo Bill in exchange for personal information from her childhood. Clarice tells Hannibal about the murder of her father when she was 10 years old. Meanwhile, Dr. Chilton secretly records the conversation and reveals Clarice's deceit to Hannibal before offering him a deal of his own. Hannibal agrees and is flown to Memphis, where he verbally torments Senator Ruth Martin, the mother of the kidnapped Catherine, and gives her misleading information on Buffalo Bill, including the name Louis Friend. Clarice notices that Louis Friend is actually an anagram of iron sulfide, or fool's gold. She visits Hannibal, who is now being held in a cage-like cell in a Tennessee courthouse, and asks for the truth. Hannibal tells her that all of the information she needs is contained in the case file. 
Rather than give her the real name, he insists that they continue their quid pro quo, and she recounts a traumatic childhood incident where she was awakened by the sound of spring lambs being slaughtered on a relative's farm in Montana. Clarice admits that she still sometimes wakes, thinking she can hear the lambs screaming, and Hannibal speculates that she is motivated to save Catherine in the hope that it will end the nightmares. Hannibal gives her back the case files on Buffalo Bill after their conversation is interrupted by Dr. Chilton and the police, who escort her from the building. Later that evening, in a bloody and elaborate ruse, Hannibal kills his guards, escapes from his cell, and disappears into the night. Later, Clarice analyzes Hannibal's annotations in the case files and realizes that Buffalo Bill must have known his first victim personally. Clarice travels to the victim's hometown and discovers that Buffalo Bill was a tailor, with dresses and dress patterns identical to the patches of skin removed from each of his victims. She telephones Crawford to inform him that Buffalo Bill is trying to form a woman's suit out of real skin, but Crawford is already en route to make an arrest, having cross-referenced Hannibal's notes with hospital archives and finding a transsexual woman named Jane Gum, who once applied unsuccessfully for a sex change operation. Clarice continues interviewing friends of Buffalo Bill's first victim in Ohio, while Crawford leads an FBI HRT team to Gum's address in Illinois, which turns out to be empty. Meanwhile, Clarice is led to the house of a Jack Gordon, who she realizes actually Jane Gum after seeing a large moth land on sewing equipment inside his house. She pursues him down into his multi-room basement, where she discovers that Catherine is still alive but trapped in a dry well. After turning off the basement lights, Gum stalks Clarice in the dark with night vision goggles, but gives his position away when he cocks his gun. Clarice reacts just in time and fires all of her rounds, killing Gum. Sometime later, at the FBI Academy graduation party, Clarice receives a phone call from Hannibal, who is at an airport in Bimini. He assures her that he does not plan to pursue her, and asks her to return the favor, which she says she can't promise to do. Hannibal then hangs up the phone, saying that he is having an old friend for dinner, and starts following a newly arrived Dr. Chilton before disappearing into the crowd. The End The Silence of the Lambs was released on February the 14th, Valentine's Day, 1991, and grossed $272 million worldwide against its $19 million budget, becoming the fifth highest grossing movie of 1991 worldwide. Damn. That's a lot. It was still a sleeper hit, though. That's right. I mean, there was tons of word of mouth for this movie, which is amazing. Although I think its opening weekend had quite a bit of, like, drawing power to it. Sure. Because the book was so well regarded by the time that the movie was released. So that played a huge part into it. Yeah. Critically acclaimed upon its release, it became only the third film... The other two being It Happened One Night and One Foot of the Cuckoo's Nest to win Academy Awards in all top five categories, which are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay, in this case, Adapted. It's also the first and so far only Best Picture winner widely considered to be a horror film and one of the only four such films to be nominated in the category, um, along with The Exorcist, Jaws, and Get Out. So that's really surprising to me. Um, Now, what's really surprising to me is that Anthony Hopkins 
won best actor to this because I would have especially given his screen time, which is like a, a legendarily 16 minutes or so. Right. Although I, I've seen different numbers on that. Yeah, I think I've seen it so far as they said, like, like 24 to 25 minutes of screen time. Either yeah, way, it's, it's incredibly low everywhere on the Internet. They're saying 16 minutes, whatever. But on IMDb, they say it's actually the second shortest. But I would have really thought that they would have given him a supporting actor, given the nature of the role as well. And I would agree, too. I think that uh, when people saw this movie, though, they, they tend to think of Hannibal Lecter as one of the main characters of this film and it'd be really disserving to that character after so much so many people had seen it and loved it to call him a supporting role right because yeah. he really does like push the story forward in such a way I do want to bring up when we're talking about awards though that this movie like famously lost so many Golden Globes right before the Oscars um, in the Globes it was nominated for Best Actress which it won it was also nominated for Best Picture director, actor, and screenplay, and lost all of those. So it was not expected to win. Exactly. It was kind of an upset, especially considering Ridley Scott's uh, Thelma and Louise, which mm-hmm. was really, I think, considered a big contender for all of these wins. Agreed. Uh, if you ever wanted to blame something for Thelma and Louise not winning all of the awards, this is the film to blame. <laughs> Sorry, Ridley Scott, you just can't win. He did, uh, but he was nominated, of course, for Thelma, uh, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, and then later, just recently, The Martian. That's right. Which is a really good movie. I love that movie mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, at the Oscars, like we said, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor and Actress in Screenplay. It was also nominated for Best Sound, which it didn't win, obviously, in Editing. Um, in my opinion, I think it could have garnered a lot more nominations in this, and we'll get into that later on oh, in the discussion. Um it was nominated for nine BAFTA awards. It only won two of them, both for the acting nominations. And um, for those of you who may not consider this movie to be a horror film, I just want to throw in that it was nominated for several Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, and it won many, many of them. So, I mean, so how, how's that for, like, throwing it in the horror ghetto? Were the know? Saturn Awards around back then? Yes, it was also nominated for many Saturn Awards as well. Back then, did they section between horror and thriller? No, they didn't. They called it a horror film. There we go. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Currently, Silence of the Lambs holds a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes with a consensus that reads, Director Jonathan Demme's smart, taut thriller teeters on the edge between psychological study and all-out horror and benefits greatly from stellar performances by Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. In 2018, Empire ranked it number 48th on their list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. And this is all over the AFI ranks as oh, yeah. well? I mean, it's the fifth greatest and most influential thriller film of all time on their lists, while the character of Clarice Starling was rated as the sixth greatest hero and Hannibal Lecter as the number one greatest villain in film. I think it's also safe to say that she was the highest ranking woman on that list of heroes. She was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The film was considered culturally, historically or aesthetically significant by the U.S. Library of Congress and was selected to be preserved in the National Film Registry in 2011. Which is a really, really high honor, honestly. It it is. I know. I think we've, we've said that on previous movies we talked about things like rosemary's baby you know but these are the movies that really stand the test of time and dead yeah and the things that we would call like classic american film or pieces of american art and that is a huge huge honor there's a lot to talk about when we start talking about silence of the lambs i think um and it's kind of hard to to put it in a certain order, you know? So I think maybe we should talk about, like, the actual technical achievements of this film and then sort of move on into its more cultural significance. 
to me, there was almost nothing special about how this was filmed. I mean, there were certain things that they did methodically, um, very well planned to give the audience certain feelings, like where Jodie Foster would look off camera, you know, for certain scenes to to make the audience have more of her perspective versus right. looking into camera. They had Hannibal do, uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, look in the camera to give the sense that he knows everything, right? And so they would do different things like that. But in a way, I was thinking while I was watching uh, this, this latest time that Silence of the Lambs is just a really good example of something that's competently directed, competently acted with really, really good material, right? The material here is what makes this movie so good. And I agree. And I mean, so like Ted Talley, who wrote the screenplay, read the novel. So he was friends with um, Thomas Harris, who is famously private as an author. Like he doesn't like to go out there publicly. He doesn't give a lot of interviews and things like that. But he happened to be a patron of the gallery that Ted Talley's wife owned. And he was talking to Thomas Harris about his previous work. And he was like, oh, I'm writing this book. Do you want an advanced copy? And he sent it to him. And Ted Talley was like, he loved it. He loved it so much. And he wanted to write this movie. Mm-hmm. By the time he got around to sort of propositioning himself or like campaigning for that role as screenwriter, it had already been picked up. And he really had to go and fight to to write this film. And he, he loved the material so, so much. And he it shows in the, in the screenplay and the way that the movie is made. And I think that he had a hand on set all the time sure. in a way that screenwriters don't always get to do. You know? Well, so I was thinking about the script and this dialogue. And I I don't think there's any other movie where I'm hanging on every word that these characters say in these scenes, especially between really just between Clarice and Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. Right. Their dialogue is so smart and back and forth. And it's just especially Hannibal Lecter's. I I almost can't think of any other film where I'm hanging on each line of dialogue uh, unless I'm thinking about something like The Lion in Winter which is, of course, Catherine Hepburn right. and Peter O'Toole. You mm-hmm. know? So that tells you what, how elevated the script is as far as how interesting and intriguing and smart it is. Agreed. I mean, like, I, I love the screenplay for this movie. I think that um, at the end of the day, it's sort of like this like crime noir, but it takes it into so many different places, right? We just had a conversation about Seven and where we talked about, like, how basic that was as far as, like, crime noir goes. And, you know, it, it made some changes throughout it, but Sounds of the Lambs really changes the game when it comes to that particular, like, subgenre of film. And I mean, just have to applaud the actors for this because I, th- I think that. That they, I feel that they they read the screenplay and there wasn't a whole lot of changing of what was written. You know, they they took the words and they adapted their characters so very well. When you're talking about those close up shots of Hannibal Lecter, right? Um, that movie does it a lot. I think there's lots of close ups of the men talking to Clarice in this movie. Like they do a lot of close ups of Scott Glenn. They do close ups of Ted Levine. They do close ups of every man who's even Barney. You well, know, for Clarice's yeah. monologue, they certainly pushed in on her face while she was talking about the lambs screaming. Right. Mm-hmm. So they actually do that. And it's fairly common in a dialogue, a very, very focused dialogue to slowly kind of zoom into each person's face back and forth because it's almost full body shots at first, you know, where where he's in Memphis, right? And they're talking outside of the cage. And it starts off almost full body shots, and then it just goes closer and closer to each one of their faces as the dialogue continues. And that's one way to, 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 to zoom the audience in and, and make it even more immersive 
in the performances. And that's another thing. I mean, I, I can talk about the material all day about this film, but it is Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster's performances that really, really make this magic, right? I can't almost imagine anyone else selling Hannibal Lecter in this performance like Anthony Hopkins did. And Anthony Hopkins was no stranger to horror roles, you know, even before this and certainly after it. And I this know. was kind of his last ditch effort to succeed in Hollywood. Yeah, and I had I had heard that before. I think that he tried. I know like early on he did like Audrey Rose and Magic were two like early horror films. He was he gonna did. leave America and yeah. he was gonna go just focus solely on the stage. And then after Sons of the Lambs, he got just a slew of roles. I mean, this is one of those times where like the Academy Award curse like did not happen, you know, like he won the Academy Award. He got nominated a couple times afterward. But I mean, aside from some of the like the high British period pieces he made, he made a lot of horror and horror adjacent movies afterward. Things like Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? Uh, the Edge, which I consider to be quite horror adjacent. Oh, that's a great movie. Mm-hmm. So Hearts in Atlantis is a Stephen King adaptation. He was in The Wolfman. Well, now he's in Westworld. That's right. And he's an amazing. And he played Hitchcock, you know, later on. So I mean, like he really, I think he really took this role. And Nixon. And that was really scary. I forgot he was in Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Dallas was good in that movie, well, too. He was nominated. Or, he was. Yeah. yeah. That was, I mean, that was a good movie. He, he's a fantastic actor. And it sort of like bums me out to think that he was trying to work for so long and not just not being recognized for everything. Well, right? I think it was karma because he lucked out with his first movie. His first movie was The Lion in Winter. You're right. Very first. Mm-hmm. And, and he got a lot of advice from Katherine Hepburn on how to act for film. And that's a really incredible story. That kind of shows a little bit, I think. I mean, like, he has kind of a Catherine Hepburn cadence. That's funny that you say that because he said that he pulled two people as influences on his voice for Hannibal. Okay. That was Truman Capote and that was Catherine Hepburn. (laughs) I can totally see the Catherine Hepburn, like, all over it, you know? That kind of a nasal Clarice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's totally Catherine Hepburn. I love it. Jodie Foster herself is no like stranger to good roles either. Like she had previously won Best Actress for The Accused. I think it was like back in like nineteen, I don't know, eighty nine or something like that when that came out, where she played some sort of like really unsympathetic rape victim, mm-hmm. right? And she's fantastic in that role. And I think after she won that Oscar, she went to campaign for things that she wanted to do. And I think that Jodie Foster really had her eyes set on a grander role in filmmaking because I, I think that she agreed to do movies so she could also become a director later on in life, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, like, she just... Both of them are, like, trained actors and they knew how to dive into a character and it just shows on the screen. Well, she campaigned hard for this role and they went after several actresses first who declined it. And we'll go into that later because that's part of my fun facts section. (laughs) Those are always my favorite. I cannot wait to hear that shit. (laughs) But yeah, so uh, she finally got it just because of her passion for the project. Mm hmm. Uh, Jonathan Demme was the director of this movie, and he um, studied under Roger Corman, right? So he, in his early years of filmmaking, he did a lot of these exploitation films that Corman was making. And I think you cannot work under Roger Corman and not learn how to make a movie very quickly, very cheaply, and, you know, as good as possible, right? Yeah. You, you make the movie for what you got. You do it as best you can. But um, he did movies like Something Wild and Married to the Mob before that. And after Silence of the Lambs, he went on to do things like Philadelphia, um, Beloved, which we have 
famously made fun of on this podcast, I think, a couple times, mm-hmm. right? But I think we still like that movie. So, I mean, but I mean, he's he's no slouch when it comes to directing. He knows what he's doing and he knows how to work a camera and to work a cast. And so this is just one of those times that everything is kismet to me. Like you get the right people at the right time on the right movie and it just all falls into place. I talk about like my running top five movies of all time right and it hasn't changed since like the early 2000s and sons of lambs is always like right there at number six and i don't know why it doesn't creep into it because it really is almost a perfect movie uh like the the, the cinematography in this film by tak fujimoto is amazing to me i'm not a the, the, the biggest fan of horror scores but if you recall back to our top 10 I listed this one from Howard Shore well and, Howard Shore was trying to make an invisible score too and it works and yeah he was trying to make it non-noticeable but there's still a theme there which I like oh yeah but it's compared to some of Howard Shore's other work like Lord of the Rings where it's much much more thematic and bombastic Right. So he's capable of a, a huge range of music, which I've always loved about Howard Shore. And comparatively, this one is very quiet. There's lots of like like growing strings and things like that. And, he, and it's really like good, almost like Hitchcockian score, you know. Yeah. And so it's like uh, Bernard Herrmann-esque, you know. And I mean, I, I like that. It's very string heavy and it really fits the background so much, you know, and I, I rarely ever say that about scores and this is just one of my favorites. I know, um, when I lived in New York, I used to have to walk for blocks and blocks to get to subway stations, sometimes very late at night. I worked at a video store and I had to close it sometimes. And so it's like one o'clock in the morning. I'm walking through New York and this is one of the staples that I listened to all the time was that opening scene from Sounds of the Lambs. Yeah. And like, clearly no wonder I was so scared sometimes walking around because I'm like listening to this tense ass music in the dark to a quiet subway station you know it's it's a really effective score it is it. and actually I really like the score and it's super effective and it matches this, the DNA of this film really really well it's a match made in heaven if I'm going to like take scores to listen to this is not really one of them outside of that opening track mm-hmm. yeah um, if I was going to listen I'd, I'd, to any kind of thriller because that's similar to Silence of the Lambs I still prefer the, the score to Copycat which is also really good yeah was it Young, right? Christopher Young. Yeah. It's also fun to note that after, I mean, Jonathan Demme owes a debt of gratitude to Roger Corman for sure. He pops up in this movie as like the, the head of the FBI. And it's one of those really fun cameos. And for this rewatch, I think I, I last rewatched Sounds of the Lambs maybe like three or four years ago. And it was right near Halloween. And my husband does not like horror movies, but he will watch Sons of the Lambs. So we did a Manhunter, Sons of the Lambs, Hannibal, like marathon. Mm -hmm. And I totally forgot that Roger Corman was in this movie. And so when his name popped up in the credits, I was just like, oh my God, I forgot that Roger Corman was in this. And he is briefly, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show you that, I mean, these, these directors who come up through the system and like learn their craft they always go back and like show their appreciation for the people who taught them what to do and where they came from yeah i think this movie is incredibly well choreographed right and i i don't really say that very often about films you mean like the blocking yes right so i mean it, not so much like for the actors. I think that's just like this movie does a really good job of like knowing, I guess it is blocking too. You can do that for other things like cop cars. You know that scene where Hannibal Lecter is flying into Memphis, right? And it cuts directly to that hangar where the plane has landed. And these two lines of cop cars are sort of like joining together. No, they have a lot of great set pieces. Yes. Yeah. 
My gosh. And it goes to show you too, like we were talking about like kismet and having the right people at the right time. And like, I'm not even quite sure in filmmaking who sets those sort of things up. Is it a director? Or is it the, the, the cinematographer who sets those things up like that? Uh, there's or? a lot. There can be the director has a lot. The cinematographer can, the DP, obviously, the director of photography, um, you know, the set, you know, the dressers, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people. And of course, that comes from material as well. So it's just a, it's kind of a perfect storm of a lot of different people's input. And it becomes really iconic, too, especially when it comes to like costumes, I think, like Colleen Atwood did this. And, you know, that face piece that Hannibal Lecter wears when he's being escorted off that plane or when he's in his like uh, cell with Chilton and Barney standing right beside him right just the the choices they made make it seem so much more scary and that's actually a good example because uh like anthony hopkins uh really kind of went to jonathan demi and you were like why doesn't he wear white in this end scene right like in the cage because they were going to have him be in the orange jumpsuit you know and all of that Mm -hmm. and they just thought it looked much more gothic and psychiatric and horror-esque in a way demonic with him wearing completely white in those ending scenes and i thought that was great especially because it pops the blood really well it really does i mean so if you're trying to like have to showcase the red of the blood against white that's great and white's kind of scary anyway you know if you see someone just completely in white it can call back fears of like like the medical industry or whatever you know yeah and not in every culture black is death and white is life right yeah in other cultures white is the color for death etc right really that's interesting yeah this movie is kind of famously de cried as not a horror film and i'm i'm not quite sure why because i think it has tons and tons of elements of of horror in it that's it's really interesting because you'll ask this is like one of the main movies that you can bring up to people that when they say they don't like horror movies and you say you know it's just like my go-to and I think it's Matt's go-to when he has this conversation. He has a lot more conversation about it than I do. Yeah. Um, and like he'll he'll meet people at his work and he'll they'll talk about movies and they'll say, "Oh, I hate horror movies." And he goes, "Well, do you like Silence of the Lambs?" And like, "Well, that's not really a horror movie, mm. right?" So it's again that horror movie ghetto yeah. that people just think that it has to be a shitty crap like B movie, or they just don't like to be scared. But you don't have to be scared in a horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's a whole all-encompassing genre in a way, right? As far as the macabre and dealing with kind of the dark nature of humanity in a way. So to me, like just we were talking about earlier, the Saturn Awards didn't used to differentiate between horror and thriller. Now they do. So that's really interesting because I feel like there was this push in the late 80s and early 90s to differentiate thrillers from horror so that they could do these films and not be like lumped into that category, that psychological category that people have for horror a lot of the time. Which is, uh, it's a really a shame because they're missing out on a lot of great movies. A lot of people wouldn't think of Jurassic Park or even Jaws as a horror movie, but th- those are, you know, in a way. And this is a good conversation for us to have later on, I think, too. Yeah, I we're going to have a whole yeah. Patreon episode about the genre of horror and all of its little Venn diagrams into other genres. Because here at the Film Flamers, we talk about horror adjacency quite a bit. It's about, I mean, the last couple of movies that we've covered have been, you know, what people would consider to be horror adjacent. And I think that this is like the number one horror adjacent movie. I have no problems calling it a horror film, you know, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. But um, I was reading an article from 2016 around the anniversary of the release of this movie and they were interviewing Ted Talley the screenwriter 
And he was asked, how do you feel about people describing Sons of the Lambs as a horror movie, right? And he says, uh, it's been embraced over the years by the horror community, which is fine with me. They like to say it's the only horror movie to ever win Best Picture, but I always think of it as a detective movie or a thriller. I have nothing against horror movies, but to me, horror movies involve the supernatural. Lecter may border <laughs> on supernatural, but he's not. And I could not disagree more with this uh, this the screenwriter's like comments of his own movie movie i mean yeah there's supernatural horror but then you have like what i feel like what most people identify as the the horror ghetto as you know like the my bloody valentines the the horror schlock right right those b movies and so it's just way more than that and it's still great to like those movies too and this movie why it does not have the kind of level of violence that you would expect from a slasher movie per se right there's lots of really uncomfortable like gore that's just shown after the fact or like post-mortem on victims right Mm -hmm. there's lots of really shocking moments that women consider this to be horrific and i i don't think it's safe to discount it and i certainly don't think it's safe to discount the entire horror genre as something that's only supernatural you know quote unquote but i mean hey that's what he said it's what he thinks Mm -hmm. i would think that most people disagree with that wholeheartedly so we've talked about before in this podcast, especially last month's top 10, where we're talking about psycho killers, how Buffalo Bill, a.k.a. James Gum, is sort of like an amalgam of serial killers that Thomas Harris sort of based that character on. Yet again, Ed Gein. Yeah, yeah Ed Gein. And I think like there's some there's some places in this movie where you see lots of like Ted Bundy, right? Especially when he's trying to push that couch in the back when he catches Catherine Martin for the first time. And that's something that Ted Bundy did. So they sort of like create this character. But in the novel, this character is a transsexual or thinks he is or wants to be. I think that you can sort of like gauge him on, you know, the, the levels of transsexualism or whatnot. I think he's an effective villain, right? But a lot of people sort of decried him as maybe anti-trans or anti-LGBT. You know, at, at the time, I think in 1991, they wouldn't even use the term LGBT, right? Yeah. On his release, The Silence of the Lambs was criticized by members of the LGBT community, even though, like you said, they weren't really called that back then as mm-hmm. much, um, for its portrayal of Buffalo Bill as bisexual and transsexual. Uh, In response to the critics, Jonathan Demme replied that Buffalo Bill wasn't a gay character. He was a tormented man who hated himself and wished he was a woman because that would have made him as far away from himself as he could possibly be. Which I think is bullshit. Yeah. He's obviously, at the very least, bisexual. Well, don't they make... Doesn't Hannibal make an an inference to him, like, having a male lover at some point, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's in the story. Like, he had... They were lovers. Um, Demi added that he came to realize that there was a tremendous absence of positive gay characters in movies. But a lot of the criticism was directed towards Foster, who the critics alleged was herself a lesbian, which Mm. we know to be true now. Yes. But a lot of this stuff ties to the concept of autogynephilia. This is basically a theory that came out around the same time as the book and the movie, earlier in the movie, but around the same time as the book. This is Ray Blanchard's autogynephilia theory, which is a psychological typology of male-to-female transsexualism created by Blanchard through the 80s and 90s, building on the work of his colleague Kurt Freund. Uh, Blanchard divided trans women into two groups. One was your homosexual transsexuals, what are now otherwise termed the heterosexual trans women, who, Blanchard says, seek 
sex reassignment surgery because they are feminine in both behavior and appearance, and to romantically and sexually attract, ideally, heterosexual men. Now, his other is the autogonophilic transsexuals, who, according to Blanchard, are sexually aroused by the idea of having a female body. Blanchard's model is unusual in that neither group is actually considered false transsexuals. Both autogonophilic and homosexual transsexuals are thought to benefit from that transition, but this distinction is a recurring theme in scholarly literature on transsexualism itself. So Blanchard's theory has done nothing for the transgender community or the LGBT community at large. At worst, it's, it's damaged the public's view of transgender people as menaces to society or even dangerous. The trope that this theory helped to create has a name. And this is from, you can look this up on TV Tropes, mm-hmm. uh, is called Creepy Crossdresser. Film is not the worst offender. It's just a really obvious one. Um, in this defense, both the novel and the movie go out of their way to tell audiences that being a transsexual in and of itself is not connected to violence. Specifically, Clarice says, and Hannibal agrees, that Bill can't be a transsexual because transsexuals are not innately violent. According to Hannibal, Bill only thinks he's a transsexual due to his quote-unquote hatred of his own identity. This reflects the fair-for-its-day but out-of-date psychology that the book and film relied on. At the time, transsexuality was actually conflated with cross-dressing, and it was thought to be like a mental disorder, along with, of course, being gay earlier than that, and probably around the same time, albeit a benign one, which is kind of the point here. No records or proven cases indicated then or now that transsexuality ever predisposed a person to violence, and so Bill is dismissed as not being a true transsexual. Nowadays, a distinction is drawn between transvitism or cross-dressing and being transgender, or for you newbies, having a gender identity which does doesn't align with the one assigned at birth. Neither of these, in and of themselves, can cause or prevent someone to become a homicidal maniac. More specifically, Bill, or Buffalo Bill, is shown to be sexually aroused by the idea of himself as a woman, which is itself also an outdated concept created to hand-wave trans women who are not attracted to men as not being true trans women. The film was heavily criticized in the trans community for portraying a transgender individual as a violent psychopath and for its implications that Bill was turned down for surgery because he was too big and masculine to pass for a woman. The film left out a scene that actually from the book that clarified Bill was declined due to his psych assessment because he had already murdered his grandparents and spent time in juvenile detention for the crime. In each movie we watch where like a, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans person is stereotypically killed off or victimized or seen to be mentally ill or a murderess due to, at least in part, because of their otherness, I feel like we, we defend the films based on their own individual and unique context. But the problem here is that if we zoom out to view all of these films together, there's a pattern that's informing society of what an LGBT person is. This is... Oh, shit, I'm going to say the word. What? Problematic. (laughs) So my Jerry Springer final thought is that we can enjoy these films, but we've got to call these tropes out whenever we see them. So if nothing else, people can better be informed about, you know, and have healthier and realistic views of the LGBT community at large. And that's true. I know that this is nothing new when it comes to horror. There's there has been many issues of like transgender people being murderous or, you know, evil in movies, things like freebie and the bean or dressed to kill. Right. Mm. I think that songs of lambs took it a step further and it really made the character who he was because he was transgendered or thought he was transgendered. However, at the end of the day, I don't think that 
the movie portrays him as being evil because he's transgendered. It's right? a mirror of the society's view, right? And and like you could even see that with like um, Sleepaway Camp. It, it's it's definitely shown that it's either because of this. Or that it certainly doesn't help, and they're already well on their way to mental disorder, you know, and psycho, you know, psychopathy, right? Right. So, it, like I said, like each of these films kind of explains it within their own little universe, and like this one, they they actually have lines in there that kind of shield them a little bit from that by saying transsexuals aren't violent, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of that that hand wave, right? It's like. If you zoom out and you look at the pattern amongst all these different films, it's happening, you know, it's happened again and again and again and again, where the gay person or the bi person or the trans person is insane somehow. Right. You know, fucking Norman Bates, the very original, you know, right. uh, Sleepaway Camp, this one. I mean, you have basically all the stereotypes and tropes surrounding gay people that help to inform a society at large, which is why it keeps happening. People keep writing these things into their films because that's how people expect it to be. And so we have to call those out as patterns versus hating individual films, I think. Well, yeah, because, I mean, for a long period of time, if you were to see a gay character in film, it was either as some sort of, like, comedic relief, right? Or a murderous villain or somebody who's, you know, sadly dying of a disease, which Demi did later on. Yeah, Yeah, you know? And so, I mean, like, he was decried for this movie when it came out. You already talked about protests and things like that, you know, after the movie's release. And people were protesting the Oscars that year. And they knew it was going to happen. And I think that people were sort of, like, floundering to sort of, you know, correct a mistake after it had been made or whatever. And that's, that's the reason why they were wearing red, red ribbons that year for like AIDS, you know, mm-hmm. the AIDS crisis. And uh, Orion was trying to give out free copies of the movie for like AIDS benefits and things like that. And I was just like, well, if people are already protesting, you probably don't want to do that. Just like do what you can. And Demi has gone on record and, and talked about, you know, either the protests or his, you know, being called out for his treatment of like homosexuals in the movie. I was reading an article on slate.com and they quoted him as saying that we knew it was tremendously important to not have James Gum mis- misinterpreted by the audience as being homosexual. That would be a complete betrayal of the themes in the movie and a disservice to gay people. Um, he went on to describe the killer as someone who was completely horrified at who he was and that his de- desperation to become something completely other is manifested in his ill-guided attempts at transvestitism. And um, his behavior and mannerisms can, can be interpreted as gay, right? And he that's not what he wanted to do. He later on said that he felt that he did a disservice to these gay people and he should have done a better job as a director to show that one particular character's motivations as opposed to sort of like grouping it into something entirely different. Yeah. Right. But that's something that people have uh, back to that, you know, autogynophilia argument. That's something that trans people had to fight. They're not sexually aroused. The vast, vast, vast majority of them are not sexually aroused by being a female anywhere that I am sexually aroused by being a man, you know, versus, you know, sexuality is generally, you know, outward. Right. right. And that's the same thing for trans people. They just happen to identify with another gender. So it's just something that yet one more thing they have to deal with when people are thinking about them as a mental disorder or something, you know, misunderstanding the nature of this. It's really simpler than that. Yeah. I mean, and I agree. And I, I, I know that moving forward, we're going to make better choices in film, hopefully about how people are represented, you know, and we already talked about like, being able to appreciate a movie even though it's looked back on in the past as being bad for that particular group of people. When I watch this movie, I I don't think that his motives 
fall within anything trans. I think that he was a person that was already well on his way to being murderous, right? And I yeah, know- Yeah, but, but at the same time, it's great in this film. Everything works. You know, I, I love this movie. Yeah. But at the same time, like, who's the most famous trans person in film? Probably this person. Probably, That's not great. Yeah. No, you're right. So that scene in Sons of the Lambs, the famous scene where Bill's doing his, like, naked dance, right? Where he sort of, like, you know, tucks his genitals behind himself and stands there in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I mean, can, for 19 19- 1991, or even by today's standards, be seen as something shocking to see in film, you know? And I think that, that that does create a really bad picture of what people are as well, transgendered. Or... Well, yeah. And even, okay, so what is basically, so this is what happens when you essentially don't let someone transition. That's another kind of argument that the film yep. might be portraying. Okay. And the sad reality is that when people aren't able to have access to, to these essentially transformations if they can't do it themselves you know a lot of the time they're not hurting other people they're killing themselves which is horrible and so if anything we need to shine a lot on that right yeah that's true do you think that i mean like today trans transgender people are getting a lot more notoriety and we're starting to learn more about you know that that culture of people or what these people are going through in their personal lives do you think that we wouldn't have the kind of attitude that we have today or a growing acceptance of it without something as you know who can know yeah i don't know I, i i know that it certainly did nothing good but at least now it's a conversation starter and i think the general world at large is starting to learn um, healthier attitudes towards trans people. Agreed. I think another thing that this movie does really well is sort of this like pre me too movement, right. Or like of, you know, it, to me, this movie is really, really feminist, right? And I'm not sure if they tried to do it that way, but I think that they bring up their feminism in ways because it makes people uncomfortable watching it, right? I think there's a lot of gays going to Clarice, right? I mean, like, there are guys who turn around and watch her run in the other direction, like, check out her ass or something like that. Or she walks into an elevator full of men and they all just stare at her constantly. Or she walks into that, like, mortuary and all the male cops are just looking at her right in the face or in our particular instance, the camera. Right. And I mean, it really created a sense of like uncomfortability at being a woman. It makes you really identify with that particular character. Oh no, they did a good job of, of uh, problematizing all of that. Right. As far as seeing the stares that she was getting, the judgments that she was getting, the guy using, you know, uh, sexism to kind of, you know, get his way, even though he's using it kind of ironically, like her boss or whatever. Oh, yeah. And she calls him out on that, right? In the car. He asks her, uh, you know, how she felt about that. And she's like, you you know, they're going to look for you for an example, Mm -hmm. you know, and he says, note taken. But yeah, it's a constant reminder throughout the film of, you know, basically the sexist world that she lives in. And it's good that the film problematizes that. Right. It's not just the world she lives in. There's a judgment on it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I really even Hannibal, you know, like you would say, like, if you look at the the novels and everything else, like, who does he kill? He is he if he's a serial killer, who is he? Who does he kill? And I think the the quote is that the serially rude is who Mm -hmm. he kills. Right. Rude. And just through the power of his voice and his monologuing, he somehow killed you know, his uh, roommate in the jail or whatever, in a different cell or whatever, just by talking to him, made him kill himself. He did. Because of what he flicked on. (laughs) Was that man chowder that we called it earlier? (laughs) 
Oh my god, I hate that quote too. And he's like, "Oh, I can smell your cunt or whatever." Oh. I mean, I can't even say it because we gag. She has right to. Re- she has to repeat it. Yeah, I. Mm. And he reminds her too because he was talking about that scene about coveting, right? And he just, to me. In this movie, Clary Starling is constantly being reminded that she's a woman. She's constantly being like, be careful. This may be scary for you or, you know, and like, we're, it's, we're proud of you for trying to do what you're doing, but let me just like build up for you what could happen. You know, and she's constantly being warned about things. And even from, from Lecter, she, he, he does that. He, he talks about coveting and he was just like, how do we begin to covet? Do we covet what we see every day? Right. And he's like, don't, can't you feel the eyes on you? Can't you feel people? watching your body all the time and don't your eyes move to what you want right mm-hmm. which is a constant reminder of the sexism that she's faced like day in and day out in this job and i mean she was just a student at that point so i think we learn later on in some of the sequels of sounds of the lambs exactly who she becomes right and i think this is a good time to talk about the sequel the main sequel of sounds of the lambs which is hannibal from 2001 i think yeah. is when it came out right i liked parts of that film yeah i did too i, I liked the film a lot more than i liked the book right yeah but i, I just feel like that performance that he gives, Anthony Hopkins gives as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, you know, starts transitioning over into just Anthony Hopkins being Anthony Hopkins in these yeah. sequels. And that's not something I enjoy as much. I will applaud someone who like feels at home, you know, with a character enough to like continue doing it. And I, I think that's great. Um, what's sorely missed in that particular sequel, I think, is Jodie Foster. I think Jodie Foster's performances. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I really wish I knew. Do you know why she didn't show up? I th- she was just doing other things at that time, you know, and I mean, she had moved on and she was doing a lot more directing and producing. And I mean, I, I think we even see today like Jodie Foster doesn't show up in movies n- a lot. No, it just pisses me off that I felt like that that role really gave her a lot in her career. And Anthony Hopkins came back. It's like, go back. Like, why couldn't you just do it? Or why couldn't they wait for her if they, if she couldn't? I'm sure they tried to wait for her. I mean, I hope so. I know that um, Ted Talley wanted to do a sequel to Sons of the Lambs immediately afterward. I think a lot of people did because it made a lot of money and won a lot of Oscars, right? And they were ready for a sequel, but they were giving Thomas Harris the time to create a novel first. And that's the novel that he came out with. And Ted Talley has go on record as saying that he didn't want to make it the sequel to Hannibal. He said, no, I'm not writing the screenplay. I don't want anything to do with it because he didn't like the direction that Thomas Harris took with that character of Clarice because Clarice is sort of drawn to Lecter in that book, in that movie, in a way that he felt wasn't organic to that particular character. He didn't think that they had that kind of like loving relationship, you know, I think Hannibal sort of feels that he is more in love with Clarice than Clarice is with him. I think you see that with that slight finger touch in the cell when he's giving that dossier back to her, you know, but the movie Hannibal and the novel sort of like creates this weird obsession with each other that I don't quite buy, you know, and that's to me where that particular movie fails. So I've got some fun facts. The first choice for the role of Clarice Starling was Michelle Pfeiffer. I can totally see that. Who turned it down to being nervous about the subject matter. The second choice, Meg Ryan. Oh. (laughs) Also turned down the role for the same reasons. Demi then tried to get Laura Dern, who I think would be great. Oh, yeah. But the studio rejected her as they thought she wasn't bankable. (sighs) Oh. Yeah, there's your sexism. 
As a result, Jodie Foster was given the part due to her passion for the role. I had read some articles where she had called Ted Talley and she was like, oh, I like your work as a playwright and a screenwriter. And she's like, maybe you'll write something for me one day. And he was just like, well, I'm kind of writing something for you now because he envisioned her for that role. And she said, I know you are. I mean, so I mean, she wanted that shit. Yeah, she really did. Sean Connery was the first choice to play Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> what? <laughs> Hello, Clarice. I, I don't love in slices. <laughs> <laughs> I had the transsexual and shitemish many pennies. <laughs> Fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> oh, terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Other actors considered were God, He Never Escapes Us, Al Pacino. God, for everything. Robert De Niro. <sighs> Dustin Hoffman. That could have been interesting. Mm. Derek Jacobi. That would have been interesting. Who is that? He's giving me a look, y'all. <laughs> you don't know who Derek Jacoby is? I don't. Uh, and Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, that's weird to me, too. Yeah. So uh, Anthony Hopkins famously won his Best Actor Oscar for his portrayal of Hannibal Lecter, even though the character was only on screen for just over, quote-unquote, 16 minutes in the film. We've already touched on this a little bit. However, the number is probably false. Uh, as I've seen it, at least one report that lists the screen time as exactly 24 minutes and 52 seconds. And that might actually be including like the stunt work though, because I was trying to notice that while I was watching this and I felt like a lot of the, like of shots of him, especially as he's escaping and doing all that stuff is not really him. I'm not sure. Yeah. So it'll be interesting uh, to see if I can find out what the number actually is, but apparently it's actually the second shortest amount of time. And I did not write down the first, but it's some movie from the fifties. For a male actor, because I thought that yeah, the the, best actor. the actual oh best actor, because I know like I think the shortest amount of time for a performance to win either supporting or anything was Judy Dench from Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Sir Anthony Hopkins improvised the fast slurping type sound that Hannibal Lecter does. He did it spontaneously during filming, and everyone thought it was great. Jonathan Demme became annoyed with it after a while, after a lot of takes, but denied his irritation. How could you? I mean, if my God, it's so iconic now. Yeah. The pattern on the moth's back in the iconic movie poster is not the natural pattern of the death's head hawk moth. In fact, it is Salvador Dali's Enveloptuous Moors, which is a picture of seven naked women made to look like a human skull. I actually knew that one. Well, good for you. I mean, I like art. (laughs) I always feel like I fail a little bit when these are things you already know, which is basically everything so far, I think, except for the actors, maybe. There was one more I wanted to add to that list, though. I I heard that Gene Hackman was sort of attached to this movie. Like, he bought the rights, and he's going to write it and direct it and act in it. Yeah, Yeah, and I, I don't see that at all either. But anyway, move on. Uh, The movie contains a famous misquoted line. Most people quote Dr. Hannibal Lecter's famous Good evening, Clarice, as Hello, Clarice. This line did, however, appear in Hannibal in 2001, when Hannibal and Clarice speak on the phone for the first time, which was possibly put in by the writers in the movie as a inside joke in reference to the misquoting of the movie. And I know that it's misquoted, and I misquote it still every time I say it. Because it's great. Hello, Clarice. Hello, Clarice. It just just rolls off the tongue, right? Good evening, Clarice. Yes, it doesn't work as well. Yeah. Also, did you catch George Romero's cameo? He's one of the FBI officers escorting Clarice from Hannibal's cage near the end of the film. I 
I've seen this movie so, so many times throughout my life. I first watched it when I was maybe like 12 years old or so. And I've, I've had it on VHS. I've had it on DVD. I have it on Blu-ray right now. I've seen it probably within like the 30 or 40s amount of times. So I just love this movie a lot. Yeah. And I've never been able to clock him because I'm looking for George Romero. And I assume he does not look like George Romero. No, and it's, and it's not an obvious cameo and it shouldn't be. But I actually looked it up on YouTube and there's a clip showing him and he's in the background. He has like a wig on with a mm-hmm. big parted brown hair wig and he's the tallest guy. So he's in the background and he has the glasses though, I think. So I, I could tell it was him once it was you know, pointed out. I think you may have to just show me, which is sad because he's like my favorite director, one of my, my, my biggest horror icon. So I should be able to see him in this movie. No, but I, I did I miss not it. know that Jorge was in this film. So I was happily, I was happily surprised. It was shot around Pittsburgh, right? So I mean, yeah, yeah. it was. And I mean, like Corman and Romero, they all come from the same ilk. It's and... funny because they shot almost everything on location. They were like, okay, all this is in Pittsburgh. And then they, they went to West Virginia to do like the West Virginia stuff. And they were going to do the farm on Montana and actually go to Montana. But after the... To do what? Like create a flashback? Yeah. So, but after the performances by Jodie Foster and Hannibal Lecter, they decided we cannot cut away from these performances. This is incredible work. Literally after they stopped acting, the guy was like, guess we're not going to Montana. (laughs) Oh, so you're talking about that scene where they're in Tennessee and she's describing that that night with the lambs, right? They're in Memphis and she's... Yeah, you're right. Incredible monologue and like dialogue back and forth where you're hanging on every line. Yeah. And that's like the one time that she's looking so like straight to the camera. too. So well acted that after they cut, they were basically like, guess we're not going to Montana. And so they were basically able to just skip that part of the movie. And good, because that would have been a really bad choice, in my opinion. Mm It's not a good place for a flashback. I also like that. I know I've heard somewhere that um, in that particular scene, I haven't I've never heard it myself, but um, during like the conversation between them like somebody in the background i remember the crew like dropped a wrench or something like that and yes it was at the end of that and she they they kept going she stayed in character right and they kept going and you can actually kind of hear it in the film see i can't after that they she they cut she goes what the hell was that (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that part i just know that the two things i always look for when i watch sons of the lambs is george romero and to listen for that fucking drop because it's just all i've heard about my entire life and i've never heard it i've never seen him and i need i need to know where these things are so if you heard it or saw it i need to know i'd hate that. to be the guy that drops the wrench while someone's that in it you I know think he was fired like right away oh my god <laughs> that would suck. it was probably jorge oh <laughs> jorge well here at the film flamers we like to ask a series of questions after we watch movies and the first of them always is is silence of the lambs a horror film yes Obviously, for, for many reasons. And even Wikipedia listed as such, the hell, it won some horror awards back yeah. when Saturn was just doing horror, you know? So, um, obviously, I mean, it has a lot of that horror gore that you would expect, um, you know, and you see that in some crime thrillers anyway, but there's definitely aspects to this that's horror. I mean, it gets slasher at the end when he turns off the lights. There's just so many elements to this that are that are horror esque or straight up horror or horror adjacent you know she's she's alone in in the storage unit looking for things you know all of that is just classic horror movie it is it's just straight up and uh you know the nature of hannibal lecter is very horror movie 
you know, so it's, it's just all ties together in this uh, beautiful horror thriller film that it is. And to me, I think that Sansa Lambs is really a slasher movie without the slasher tropes or the slasher effects, right? You don't get to see all these murders. You see the after effects. You get to know the killer in a way that you would watching a slasher movie, but you get to, to see him more and you get to know the victims more. Yeah. And really for me, at the end of the day, Clary Starling is a final girl, you know? She's like the epitome of final girl. She's that studious brunette who like rises above everything. Do you think she was ever in danger though? Yeah, I mean, certainly at the end. end, Yeah, Yeah. not from Hannibal, but... I think, I mean, I think she was in danger mentally from Hannibal. I think that it was, he clearly can get into people's minds very effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think that there were times, even though she was warned by all the men, the, the men in her life, you know, don't do this and don't let him get in your head. I think that it happened. It happened naturally. And she was, you know, invaded in a way by Hannibal Lecter. And she was in danger all the time. And, and you know, physically toward the end of the movie, when we have the whole scene with the night vision goggles and the hands reaching out and she's touching and he can see his hand reaching out too I mean it's just like classic slasher and she's a great final girl if you want to put her in that particular trope yeah were you scared watching Sounds of the Limbs? I don't view it as a particularly scary film. Maybe if I was younger and that, especially that ending scene where the night lights go out and he's going after you, it's a creepy movie. That's for sure. It's a foreboding movie. It's tense. Yes. But I, I wouldn't say that there's, that I was scared, you know, I wasn't pulling the covers tighter or anything, you know? Now, I mean, I've said this before on this podcast, but I watched Sounds of the Limbs far too early in my life, you know? I mean, like, because again, I mean, people didn't really censor what I watched, and I saw it way too early. I mean, I didn't understand what transsexuals were, you know, at the time. I didn't didn't understand my own gayness, you know? And there are lots of themes in this movie and situations in this movie that were so different from other horror films that I had seen. And so, yeah, it affected me in quite a way when I was younger, and I I was kind of scared. And, I mean, now when I watch it, I don't find myself you know so tense maybe because I've seen it so many times yeah. and or whatever but I can imagine like people watching this movie for the first times today or new horror fans going to discover it and then being terrified of some of these situations I think that it's a really prime example of being able to, to scare you without doing the traditional things like you don't have to have any violence on screen per se and just have the after effects and just have it equally as disturbing and something that really sticks into your mind yeah so finally and some might think most important who's the hottest guy in silence of the lambs <sighs> oh he's thinking <laughs> <laughs> um i almost wonder if they were careful about not putting any man that was attractive in this movie you don't think there's one no there's like not a single can I go first? Overly then, maybe? attractive yes. man in this film, really. So not uh, even like her dad or anything. Like I have a really everyone's kind of average McPlain rap. I have an I have a, a great fondness for the singer Chris Isaac of Wicked Game fame, and he has a cameo in this movie where he plays the leader of the SWAT team that goes into the elevator when they think that Hannibal's the one like leaking. I was going to say probably one of the the, the cameo cops or something. But, I mean, it's I mean, Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac is so hot. I think his voice is incredible. I think he's super attractive, and okay. he's like randomly in this movie, you know. But I also think that Anthony Hopkins is like depicted in such a way, and I think that his character is presented to you in such a way that. 
his intelligence is a, is very sexy, you know? Yeah, he definitely has charisma, and I like that he defends Clarice against the quote-unquote, you know, ugly, you know, ugly rudeness or whatever. Yeah, Megs, yeah. At the same time, that comes from his own psychosis, you know? So I can't. You know, I can't imagine myself being put in a position where I was attracted to this person. I think that, um, I mean, I, I will stand by Chris Isaac, you know, forever. But I think that um, Anthony Hopkins' character in this movie, if not him on his own, you know what I mean? I think Hannibal Lecter has a way to, like, mind fuck you a little bit. And Sure. You know, so, I mean. And who knows? Maybe his little impromptu therapy has helped her in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess we'll just have to like leave this one to the to the books, right? We can't Scott Glenn, maybe? I don't anyway. <laughs> this is one of those arguments that's silly to have, so it it really doesn't matter, but Yeah. Who knows? Well, I think it's safe to say that the lands have been screaming this entire time, and it's time for us to walk away from these microphones and see if they're silent. But before we do that, we want to remind you that we want to know what you think about Silence of the Lambs. Tell us what you think about our conversation, how you feel about this movie. We know it's a classic, and we want to know why you think it is. You can do that on social media, at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our voice line at 972-666-7733. That's right. We will take those voicemails and play them on our Shooting the Flames episodes that happen at the first of every month. Stay tuned for the rest of our anniversary month of August because we have a very special episode coming out next week where Chris and I are going to talk about some of our favorite horror movie quotes. That's right. And you can bet that Sons of the Lambs is going to be all over that motherfucker. Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. <laughs> oh, damn, it's not on my list. Not on mine either. What the <laughs> And guys, if you want even more Film Flamers content, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers where you can find all of our bonus content. And since we're starting our new year, we're having some new segments for you. Head over and check that out. You could have even gotten this episode early for as little as $2. Well, guys, we're tired. We need to check on those lambs. They've been screaming for quite a while. I hope you have a nice canty in your kitchen, Chris. I'm a little sip. I know I have some fava beans. (laughs) Well, on that slurp, guys. Sweet dreams. May the lamb stop screaming, Clarice. (laughs) Do your slurp one more again. (laughs) Bye.